If you have a Bible, would you open up with me to Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 3. Uh, if you're new to Living Hope or uh, you're visiting with us this morning, welcome. We're, we're back in a series that we started back in the fall in the book of Ephesians, where we just started working uh, chapter by chapter, verse by verse through, through this letter. And we kind of went at a snail's pace. So uh, it took pretty much the majority of the fall to cover the first two chapters. And now we find ourselves here in, in chapter 3. And it's kind of a an interesting turn. If you were with us in the fall, uh, I kind of did the best I could to explain all that's going on in this letter and the setup and uh, even what was happening in Ephesus at the time, perhaps that Paul wrote this letter back to that church. And so uh, if, if you're jumping back in this morning, you picked a good time to come and, and, and get into this series because I'm going to do my best to give it a bit of an abbreviated version of how we got to chapter three. So when we opened this book up, we talked about the city of Ephesus. It was a, a pivotal city in the ancient world. That it contained the, the temple to Artemis uh, or, or Diana, a Greek god. Um, and, and a lot of people from, from the Roman world would relocate to, to Ephesus to, to earn a good living and also to, um, uh, to, to participate in, in the economy that was in many ways fueled by this big temple. It's one of the, the ancient wonders of the, of the world. And so Paul's writing this letter to a church that we know has uh, had sort of a, a crazy startup. We know that because in Acts chapter 17 to Acts, Acts chapter 20, we were told about how the church started in Ephesus. And, and namely, it happened that some, uh, Paul began preaching and teaching in the synagogues, as he usually did. Uh, and many of the Jews were one to faith, but also um, some of those uh, residents of Ephesus started coming to faith. And it was as if revival broke out. So we have Jew and Gentile coming together in this one place. And we know that this place is a challenging place because there's practices of the occult. There's, there's stuff in, that happens in light of that, this giant temple that kind of affects the beginning of this church. And so as Paul is uh, preaching the gospel and the good news is going forward, the, the good news of the gospel begins to affect the economy. And the silversmiths and tradesmen and women who, who have their living as a result of these occult practices gather together in the book of Acts and they say, hey, we got to do something about this Paul character and about the preaching of the gospel because it's hitting our bottom line. Like it's affecting our financial livelihood. And so and chaos erupts and, and Paul leaves and the, the church is founded, but the church continues to grow and continues to mature. Now we know some time has passed. Paul is, has been arrested. Uh, he, he's, he's in prison in, in Rome and he's riding back to the church in Ephesus, largely made up of people that he hasn't met now. And he's explaining to them what he calls the mystery of the gospel. In those first two chapters, we talked about how it's, it's written in a Greek tone called the indicative. Paul says to the church there, this is what has happened to you in Christ. He, he pulls back the, the curtain of of God's activity and explains what, what transpired in these people coming to faith. He says, in fact, ever since I heard of your faith, I've not stopped praying for you to, to know these things. We talked about it when we looked at the latter half of chapter one, when Paul's talking about what they know, he's not just talking about a head knowledge. He's talking about an experiential knowledge. I want you to experience what God has done for you in Christ. Which is why chapter 2 was so profound and we spent so much time there. Paul says, look, prior to coming to faith in Jesus, we're by nature children of wrath. We're, we're held captive to our corruptive desires. We, we turn on one another. But God, because he is rich in mercy, has made us alive together in Christ Jesus. It is by grace we are saved through faith, not by works, so that none of us can boast. And that... 
that adage, that idea that grace is the great leveler of all peoples, that no one got into this thing by merit. No one got into this thing by their own righteousness. We all got in because God is merciful. That that becomes the bridge through which Paul would then extend out into calling the church in Ephesus to unity. At the end of chapter 2, he says, look, we're both being built together, Jew and Gentile. Regardless of your back, background, regardless of your socioeconomic status, regardless of your ethnicity, regardless of where you come from or how you got here, you got in by grace. And so because of that, we are now being built together as one people, one new temple in Christ Jesus. And it's this profound idea then that Paul begins to launch out from him in chapter 3. And he has to address something before moving into the practical considerations in chapter 4. He, he starts by talking about the fact, oh yeah, by the way, I get it, I'm in prison. And that may be like if, if you're a, a, just a, kind of an honest gut-level honest individual, you would be saying, okay, if God has done such a profound thing and giving us grace and mercy, why is your life so messed up? Because you're locked up. He, he kind of anticipates the objection. He, he addresses the elephant in the room. Hey, I'm calling you to live into this profound reality, but let's be honest, I'm in prison. Now, let me explain to you the mystery of the good news of the gospel in light of the mystery of suffering. That, that's where we jump in here in chapter three, beginning in verse one. The Apostle Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This, the, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. This is the word of the Lord. All right, where are my, uh, where are my true crime junkies in the room? Yeah, there's a few of y'all. I know, just be honest, you watch... 48 Hours Mystery, you watch 2020, you watch Dateline, right? That, or you listen to those podcasts. I'm, I used to be there with you. I've backed off in the years that have followed simply because it's the same story. Like it, all, they all start the same. In a sleepy town in Tennessee where kids ride their bikes on the street and people leave the door unlocked. It was a casual Saturday in October until murder you know, it's, it's, it's a setup always. And all these guys have really weird voices that always do the, do the narration of it. My favorite is Keith Morrison. You guys, yeah, you can clap for Keith. He, uh, 
he's a bizarre dude. It seems like he gets some sort of satisfaction in hearing the salacious details of a savage murder. He's like, oh, tell me more. You know, he's got that really like high pitched thing that he does. And so those often fall under the, I guess, the broad category of mystery. But to me, they're not mysterious. I, it used to be that I'd be like, okay, who really did commit this crime? And then it's always the husband, right? It's, he's always the bad guy. It's like he was doing all the, he was doing the lawn work and he was washing the dishes on the day that the wife disappeared. Oh, but he went to Home Depot and here's his receipt. And we're like, yeah, he probably did it. You know, that's, that's how these things go. Uh, that we have a misunderstanding or maybe a, a, a misapplication of this idea of mystery, especially when we look at the text that we just saw, because Paul uses uh, the word mystery four times, maybe five, depending on your translation, in the, just these 13 verses. And as he's prone to do in the, in, the, in the book of Ephesians, in the letter to the church at Ephesus, he has another really long run-on sentence here. Well, that word just keeps like popcorning up. I mean, mystery, mystery, mystery. It's the Greek word mysterion. It's the word from which we, we get our idea of the word mystery. But Paul's application of use of the word and application of the word, word, and in the ancient world, the way that that word was used is quite different than how we use it when we talk about mystery today. When we talk about mystery, it's like a, it's a classic whodunit, you know? And, and when we watch like a, a, a mystery show, Part of what we're being invited to do in watching that is to try to figure it out, to piece together the clues. My dad used to watch uh, Columbo. He would also watch Murder, She Wrote, which was the most boring show that I remember when I would come on on Sundays, I was like, oh, great. I got to go find something to do. My dad's occupying the TV. But Columbo was always kind of presented himself as somewhat dim-witted, remember, and he would kind of you know, fumble around and ask weird questions. And then towards the end of every episode, it would always end the same way. He'd be like, oh, why is that glass of milk over there? And that would be the clue that would break open the case and he would solve it for you. When we think of mysteries, that's the way we think of it. Like we, by our intelligence, by our, by our, by our wit, by our effort, we piece together clues and we solve the riddle. But when Paul is talking about the mystery that is, that is revealed here in, in Ephesians chapter 3, that's not it at all. He uses the word mystery, mysterion in the Greek, that was used in the ancient world to talk about something that would have been utterly ununderstandable. It would have been, it would have been incomprehensible had it not been for some sort of revelation that is outside the power, the wit, the intelligence, the, the giftedness of, of, of the investigator. In other words, someone has to disclose something in order for something to be understood. Without that disclosure, without that unveiling, without that revelation, you're never going to figure this out. And that's precisely what Paul is addressing and talking about here as he talks about the mystery of the gospel. Remember I said back in chapter 1 when Paul says that he heard of the, the people in the church at Ephesus, he heard of their faith in Christ. He began praying for them to have a knowledge of that. Not just a knowledge of an understanding, but also an experience. But then he goes kind of expounding upon what God did in the heavenlies, what God has done for us in Christ in, in, in an eternal plan that we would have never been able to understand by, by our own intelligence. We needed someone inspired by the Holy Spirit, compelled by God himself, to pull back that curtain so that we could comprehend it. Otherwise, we would never come to these conclusions. Now, 
I believe what Paul's doing here in chapter 3, especially from chapter 3, verse 1, all the way down to verse 13, is explaining the mystery of the gospel in light of the mystery of suffering. Because again, I think any honest listener to this letter, whenever it hits the church for the first time, has got to hit, hit pause at some point, hit time out and say, hold on, hold on. You're telling me, Paul is saying, what God has done for us in Jesus is so fantastic and so great. It's by grace we are saved through faith, not by works, so that no one can boast. Why in the world is this guy in prison then? Why would we continue to hear these things, seek to understand these things, these things so that we can live in this particular way if that's where we all wind up? Why would we do that? And so Paul says, I, Paul, prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you. And he goes into this explanation all the way down to verse 13 so that we'll know so that we won't lose heart. That's, that's really what's happening in these, these 13 verses. Paul goes on an excursus. He goes on a, a little bit of a rant, if you will, about why you need to understand these things so that you don't lose heart. So this is what I want to do this morning. I just want to talk about the challenge of suffering, the challenge that suffering presents to someone seeking to follow Jesus, to pursue him, to know him, to be found in him, to, to see and understand what God has done for them in Christ. And then we're going to talk about the mystery of grace, because Paul says, if we're seeking to pursue God, this, this mystery that he has revealed to us and giving us Jesus and his life and his death and his resurrection and the, the mystery that God would accept, not just Jew and Gentile, but anyone Anyone on planet earth through faith, that, that's mysterious, but God has shown it to us and revealed it to us. And then he says, I want you to understand the benefits of that, the benefits of your inclusion amongst the people of God so that you will be able to endure, so that you won't lose heart. And then hopefully for all of us, that, that correlates to the responsibility of our stewardship, the responsibility of our stewardship of the grace that we have received. So we got a lot. Let's go quick. The first thing I want to talk about is the challenge of suffering. Look back in verse one with me. Paul's just talked about the, the, the unbelievable concept or idea that God has this one household made up of Jew and Gentile, that he has adopted not just Jews, but also Gentiles into this one people. He's making us saints. He's making us members together of this household. We're being joined together in the person of Christ such that we are God's holy temple we are the place where God's presence resides. We are the place where the benefits of God's holiness and likeness is, is inhabited and, and embodied. It's possible, man, that's a profound thing. Verse one, for this reason, because of that then, Paul says, I am a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. I am a prisoner of Christ for you. And then down in verse 13, he says, So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. That bookend, verse 1 and verse 13, is how we understand this. And I think what Paul's addressing here is what I would just call the challenge of suffering. Because suffering is, for many of us, a mystery. You know, the, the big question that often gets asked, why, does bad things happen to, why do bad things happen to good people? And the classic theological answer to that is that's only happened once and he volunteered for it. But Paul is going to say suffering is mysterious in the fact that Paul gives his life. He, he gives his, his, his overall identity to the person of Jesus because of this mystery that he's about to explain. And it's landed him squarely in prison. But if you really understand what's going on, Paul says, if you really understand what it means to be called into this, if you really understand the challenge that suffering presents, then and you get the, the, the mystery of God's grace, you can keep from losing heart. 
The first thing that we see is that he says that essentially God is not removed from suffering. It's not as if when we suffer, God is absent in the equation. In fact, he's quite present. And we know that this, this is a true fact or a true statement because of how Paul even frames the whole thing up. He says, I, Paul, am a prisoner of who? Christ. Now, technically speaking, that's not true. He's a, he's a prisoner of Rome, right? He's held captive in Caesar's household. He's, he's awaiting trial. He's awaiting what will eventually be his, his execution. But in the way that Paul understands what's happening in his present suffering, he sees his, his imprisonment not as, as, as a punishment from the Roman authorities or governments, he sees it as a part of his calling in serving the Lord Jesus because of what God has done for him and being gracious to him. John Stott says it like this in his commentary on Ephesians. He says, Paul never did think or speak in purely human terms. He believed in the sovereignty of God over the affairs of men. Therefore, he called himself literally a prisoner of Christ Jesus or a prisoner for the Lord. So convinced was he that the whole of his life, including his wearisome imprisonment, was under the lordship of Jesus. And this has profound implications for us when we encounter suffering. If we see that, that Paul's theological perspective on his circumstances is not that it's punishment for something he's done. He's not viewing his circumstance. He's not doing theology through his circumstances. He's viewing his circumstances through his theology. And that's really important, y'all. He's not taking the, the situation that has befallen him in life and then bringing what he knows and understands about Jesus and trying to understand and evaluate Jesus in light of the, 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 the tragedy or the, the difficulty of his circumstances. He flips that on its head. He says, here's what I know, essentially. Here's who I am because of what God had done for me. And we'll get into this in just a minute. He says it was a profound revelation. Some of you know your Bibles. You know that in Acts chapter 8 and Acts chapter 9, that Paul was a persecutor of the church, formerly called Saul. He was, he was leveraging his social clout and capital to, to chase down and terrorize the, the early church. But he has this profound encounter with the Lord Jesus, resurrected from the dead on the road to Damascus. And, and there he, is, he falls blind because of it. And he sees Christ for who he is. And he repents and trusts in Jesus. And, and, and that, that, that encounter reshapes and reformats his very identity as a human. He's now no longer Saul the persecutor. He's, he becomes Paul the apostle. And we know because he tells us in various other writings in the New Testament that this changed everything for him. Quite notably, Philippians chapter 3, Paul says, prior to that encounter, I was the man, essentially. He, he recites his resume for the church in Philippi. Jew of Jews, baptized on the right day of the right tribe. As it came to the law, I was blameless. As it came to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. But he says, I consider all of that rubbish in light of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, being found in him in order that I might experience a death like his, so that I may even experience a resurrection like his. I enter into his suffering so that I may become like him, having a righteousness that is not my own, but the righteousness that comes from faith in Christ Jesus, my Lord. So Paul begins to teach us here that when we encounter suffering, when we encounter difficulty, when we encounter things that we can't make sense of, the great mystery that suffering offering, uh, often is, God is not removed from it. In fact, we understand it because of what God has given us in the person of Jesus. He's not removed from our suffering. And in fact, God is using our suffering. It's accomplishing something in us. 
Which is why I think that Paul can end this, this long run-on sentence by telling the church in Ephesus, I don't want you to lose heart, heart over this. I don't want you to see me in prison and be like, well, I don't think we should keep on keeping on. Look at where it got Paul. Instead, he says, I want you to reevaluate that. I want you to think about the point or the telos, the, the objective of suffering. Suffering is doing something in us. God is using our pain and our hardship for a greater purpose. He's, he's molding us and shaping us. He's forming us by, by adverse situations. He allows these things to come into our life to, to bring us into a more mature frame of mind, to, to deepen our faith and our trust in Jesus, to cling to him for hope. To be made holy and righteous in his sight. That's what God does with our suffering. And you don't, know, have, you don't have to know why it's happening in order to be shaped by it. That's one of the great things about the good news of the gospel that we're going to get to in just a second. The mystery of God's grace means I don't have to know why these things happened. I trust that if God took his son to the cross on my behalf in order, to, in order for him to experience resurrection on the backside of that and to give all of the promises that he made to Jesus as a yes and amen, I know that whatever I'm going through now is not the final word. This is not the, the total story. This is a path in the process that God has leading to resurrection, leading to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. God can then use my suffering. I didn't bring the graphic today because I've shown it to you guys probably too many times, but I'm going to reference it again. Uh, there, I used to have the, the, the Venn diagram, I think it's called, of uh, your comfort zone and your growth. And those two circles have never once overlapped in the history of your life. I don't know you, but I know that not one single human has ever grown spiritually, emotionally, maturity-wise by staying comfortable, <laughs> And oftentimes, as Paul's showing us here, I'm a prisoner of the Lord Jesus, he says. God has him in chains so that in doing that, he can produce something in Paul that, that will last. Something that, that has a, an aspect of eternality to it. It goes way beyond his life. Think about it. We're still studying it today. Letters that he wrote when he was in prison. It's what he says in 2 Corinthians to the church there, that the entire church is kind of bought into this idea that if you just if you just do the right things, then life will be easy. And Paul says, no, that's not the way it works at all. He says, I'm pressed, but I'm not crushed. I'm, I'm persecuted, but I'm not abandoned. I'm struck down, but I'm not destroyed. I'm always being given over to the death of Jesus so that in me, the life of Jesus may be made manifest to you. That as we have treasure in these jars of clay, Paul says, as our lives kind of get squished by suffering and trial and hardship and difficulty, God does something profound and significant through our very lives. So I would encourage you this morning, if you're in a difficult season, if you're up against the challenge of suffering, rather than trying to understand the mystery of your suffering, I would say, let's let go of the, the why question. Why is this happening? We don't know. Let's instead look at what we do know. God has given us some insight into the mystery of grace. Again, this isn't because we figured it out. We would have never have come to these conclusions, Paul says. The, the sons of the faith from the past long to see these things. Paul even says angels long to know these things. So angels aren't omniscient. They were wanting to see, well, God, what are you up to? Why is this plan working out this way? So Paul says we have been brought in on this beautiful mystery. Look back again. Verse 2, assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, 
as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So Paul pulls back the curtain. We get a definition here of that Greek word mysterion. It's, it's anything that was hidden that can now be made known through revelation. Paul says that if, if the gospel was a mystery story, if it was a, if it was a true crime docuseries, all of y'all would have been watching it thinking you had it figured out and no one would have gotten it right. The plan for God to enter into humanity, become a man, take on flesh, be born into our likeness, become obedient even to the point of death, even death upon a cross, and then to be resurrected. No, no one had that on their bingo card. No one had put those, connected those dots and come to those conclusions. God had to reveal it. God had to disclose it. He says through his prophets and through his apostles, he had to reveal these things. You would have never have come to these conclusions by your effort, but only by divine disclosure. And Paul says that in the midst of suffering, that's what God wants to push us back to. That God had hidden things from us so that he could at the right time reveal it to us. I heard a story recently of... Um, the chess prodigy, Bobby Fischer. Um, I, I just learned how to play chess like this, this year. My son got into it. And so I was like, okay, if he's going to get into it, I'm going to get into it. And all I know thus far is that it is a really hard game to get good at because my son is 12 and he beats me every time. And I'll think like, man, I got him and I make a move and I'm like, woohoo. And then he's like, check. And I'm like, what? Didn't see that coming. I've heard the story about Bobby Fischer. That, um, Bobby Fischer, the, the chess prodigy, had, had all of these moves that he did not use in games uh, because he, he didn't want people to figure him out. He would sit on these, these schemes or these strategies until he played particular players and specific players who, uh, who had studied everything that he had ever done. And so they, he would basically lead them down this path and they'd be like, aha, I got him. And then he would pull something out that they'd never saw coming. And that's how he won a lot of his matches. And in many ways, I think that whenever you read the, 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 the Bible, if you were to read the Bible, some of y'all may be doing in chronological study right now. And you start all the way back in the book of Genesis. About halfway through the Old Testament, I think you're going to be like, ah, I think I've got to figure it out. And then God's going to like just do a complete juke move on you. And you're like, didn't see that coming. And, and, and then there's exile. And then there's, there's different factions that emerge. And there's the intertestamental period. And then Jesus shows up. And Jesus starts talking about, especially to the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, hey, you didn't see this coming, but I'm here. I am. And that's kind of what Paul is pointing to here. When Christ appears and this mystery gets unveiled, what God has revealed to us in the gospel is what we need when we're bumping up against suffering. Namely, we need to know this grace that Paul talks about, this mystery of grace, that the Jews and the Gentiles are both getting in. And they're not getting in because they all jump through the same hoops. It's by grace we are saved through faith, not by works so that no one can boast. The great leveler of God's grace is this entrance into God's new community. And this is the thing, the mystery that as God reveals it to us, enables us to, to take on suffering, to take on the challenges of life, to not lose heart. It's deeply profound. Tim Keller said, preaching on this passage once upon a time, he said, grace is counterintuitive. It's not what you would ordinarily think. 
It goes against all your instincts that in spite of how bad you are, you're saved by sheer grace. The law of God is never called a mystery because the idea that you're saved by living a good life makes perfect sense. The idea that you're saved by grace, that you're now simultaneously sinful and yet righteous in his sight, that makes absolutely no sense to the human heart. That's the profound mystery. We all think that, yeah, if someone lived a good enough life, they should get in. But when God comes along and says, no, we are by nature children of wrath and we're without hope. We, we, we had no, nothing we could point to, no claim we could make before a holy God that got us entrance into his, not just into his kingdom, but amongst his people. And then God through Christ gives us mercy. It's by grace we are saved. And what's good about that, especially as you encounter suffering, is that if you believe the lie that you're somehow saved by your own will and effort and intelligence and power or whatever, then whenever you suffer, you also got to ask the question, is this because of something I've done? If you adopt this schema of human righteousness that is, you know, stacking up all of your credits and your merits such that God will accept you, then when bad things do happen to what you believe to be good people, it throws everything in the blender. You can't make sense of the world at all. But if we're saved by sheer grace, then suffering can make sense, even if you don't know why. Because you know that God in his mercy, who's going to one day resurrect us into a new heaven and a new earth, may be using very challenging things to accomplish something in us we would never have been able to accomplish by ourselves. That's why verse 8 is such a profound statement when Paul says, to me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. The mystery of grace is the thing we cling to amidst a world that's challenging and hard. When we may be on the verge of losing heart, God has revealed to us what he's given us in the person of Jesus such that we can persevere. And then Paul says there's benefits to that inclusion, that mystery that we've all been incorporated into God's people by the person of Christ. There's, there's really three identities that Paul says that we take on through grace, that we become something different. And then there's something that that gives us the privilege to do as well. First thing he says that we're, is that we're heirs. In verse six, the mystery is this, the Gentiles are fellow heirs. We talked about this back in, I believe in chapter one, when we were, Paul makes a, 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 a kind of a long treatise on, on what that means for us. But, but to be an heir means that you were adopted. And you were adopted into the family of God and you weren't treated as though you were adopted. You were treated as a full benefactor of all the rights and privileges that God has always had and wanted to give to his people. This is a profound idea that all that God has in God's, in God's estate planning, you are listed as a beneficiary and you get all the stuff as well. I mean, it's King Jesus who lived perfectly. It's King Jesus who, who did all that was expected in the law so, and, and, and was righteous through, through and through all the way till the end. But we get all the same benefits. It's bestowed upon us. It's, it's a grace that's, that's given to us. That is a righteousness that is not our own, but it comes through faith. So we're heirs. We've been adopted into God's family and all that he has belongs to us as well. And then Paul says we're members. Not only are we, not only are we, are, are we fellow heirs, but we're members of the same body. We belong to one another and we both belong to God. This is a metaphor Paul uses all throughout the New Testament, places like 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Romans chapter 12, where Paul talks about what it means to be interdependent upon one another. 
It's just like your body. You have a body singular, but it has many members. You have fingers and toes and legs and arms and a nose and ears and all these things. All these things that make up the one thing work in conjunction with one another. Paul says that's part of the beautiful mystery of the gospel. Because God is gracious, because grace is what got all of us into this thing called the body, it means that we all have a role to play. We all have a gift to, to give. We all have some, some thing that we're responsible for in the body. And it's grace that gets us into that thing. So Paul would say, I'm a prisoner of Jesus in prison, but that's his role to play, even in suffering. So that he can, from that posture and from that position, teach the rest of the body. This is what it means for you to be a part of this. We are partakers in this thing together. And that's the last one Paul says. We're partakers of the promises in Christ Jesus through the gospel. We all get the promises that God has made to his people, made to us as well. Every promise that was ratified in the resurrection of Jesus is ours. Which is why down at the, the back half in, 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 verse, uh, in verse 11, Paul says, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, in whom, here it is, we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. We are these things and we have this and we have boldness and confident access. When we studied Hebrews about a year ago, we hit that verse, I think it's in chapter four, where the author of Hebrews says, let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence. Let us run to the throne of God's grace because we know that it's, the, the doors have been flung wide open and we are invited in because God is merciful to us to come to him, to confess to him, to be found in him. That's what we have as a part of being included in this thing called the church or the people of God. That's our benefits. Which Paul then says, I think the main reason why we, he doesn't want us to lose heart is that we have responsibility for the stewardship of the gospel that we've been given. The grace that has been shown to us. That's the that's way Paul frames it up for himself. Again, look back in, in verse 8. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to life for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Paul says, I'm the, I'm the least of the apostles. And that, that's not just false modesty. He's saying, look, I, I went through some stuff. And there were people, even in the book of Acts, who were still scared of Paul because he was a persecutor of the church. But he, he realized, I got in because of grace, so now I have a responsibility that, that is a privilege to steward this grace into others' lives. What that means is that we've been given the privilege of a humble evangelism. Paul's not sounding the trumpet saying, hey guys, I, I figured it out. I solved the riddle. I put the clues together. Therefore, I'm able to tell you how you get in. He says, no, God revealed something to me that I never would have come to. I never would have known that conclusion apart from God's revelation. So I want to tell the world about that. I've been commissioned to go explain to other people. Look at what God did for us in Jesus. Something none of us would have put two and two together and come to. It's because he's good and he's kind and he's loving. It's by grace we're saved through faith, not by works. Hallelujah. It's good news. And to the extent that in the midst of suffering, we can see that we, we've been brought in by, by, by merit that we, we, we did not deserve. This is the merit of Christ himself. Then that corresponds to a humble evangelism in our lives. And Paul says, and this is maybe the most profound thing in this entire section, a demonstration of wisdom. Look back one last time, verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. 
This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, if we can hear what Paul has to say about the good news of the gospel, the mystery of God's grace that has been revealed. And if we believe that, by faith we take hold of that. We take hold of all of these identities that we've been given. We're heirs, we're partakers, we're members of of one another. And if we're being built together in Christ Jesus, then there's something that God is doing in our midst that as we live this out, the, the, the authorities and the rulers in heavenly places, I don't really even know what that means. Those who, who are looking on from, from a time and space we know not are understanding something by watching us. And God is revealing something through us that's, that, that, that defies the wisdom of the world. It turns the wisdom of the world on its head because the wisdom of the world is figure out why you're suffering. Solve that mystery. Paul says, no, the mystery of grace allows us to enter into that mystery with some measure of certainty. God's up to something. I absolutely love the way that N.T. Wright closes this out. He says this, verse 10 is one of the New Testament's most powerful statements of the reason for the church's existence. The rulers and authorities must be confronted with God's wisdom in all of its rich variety. And this is to happen through the church, namely by what the church is, the community in which men and women and children of every race and color and social and cultural background come together in glad worship of the one true God. So Father, would we give ourselves to this mystery? Would we allow the the good news of the gospel and the grace that you've shown us to so form us as your people that we become a demonstration of your wisdom to a world that needs to see it? Would you form and shape our hearts such that we don't lose heart amidst suffering, but we continue running back to these truths to be found in you and to be known by you and ultimately to be formed to be like you? We pray these things in the person of Jesus, our Savior and Lord. Amen.